El Fanboy, episode 15. everybody and welcome this is mario francisco robles mfr here with you and this is the 15th edition of the el fanboy podcast uh you know this is this is kind of a tough one today is going to be a tough show to get through because you know it's like sometimes things happen in life that totally overshadow all the trivial shit that we focus on all day all the little things that we that we stress about that we put all of our energy into whether it's movies whether it's our sports teams whether it's our hobbies sometimes things happen that really put things in perspective and you realize how utterly unimportant any of it is in the grand scheme of things um so there's just there's a lot of loss to deal with today there's a lot of death there's a lot of you know, and I'm going to try to not go too far into the darkness because I don't want to add to that negative, that, that negativity in your head. You know, right now we're all living in dark times and I don't want my show to be a place for you to feel, continue to feel dark. I want to try to give you an outlet or an escape, but it's just hard today. You know, um, for starters, this just, you know, news just broke a little while ago. Uh, we got to send out our condolences for Roger Moore. Uh, the iconic James Bond actor has just passed away. Um, and you know, last week I forgot to touch on the sudden passing of Chris Cornell via suicide. You know, it's, uh, that, that's a death that I feel has flown under the radar in terms of mainstream coverage. Maybe it's because rock music isn't as big as it used to be or or whatever the case I know. And then Roger Ailes died. You know, his death kind of got swallowed up, but that's a big one for me because, you know, in another life, in another life, I was a front man for a rock band. You know, that, that rock music is a big part of my life. I grew up around it and it, it, for a long time there, it was my absolute favorite genre of music. It still pretty much is. And Chris Cornell in particular, his voice was one that heavily influenced me. Uh, you know, his, the, his vocals for me were always sort of like goosebump inducing. They'd make the hair on the back of my neck sort of stand up. I loved how he can go from singing in very sort of soft, melodic tones to suddenly, you know, like this very passionate growl and everything in between. You know, he was a rock singer who could really sing. You know, if you pay attention to a lot of the iconic rock singers out there, they're, they're more of a personality. You know, if you think about Mick Jagger, he doesn't have a great set of pipes. You know, you think about David Lee Roth, again, not a great singer, but these guys have withstood the test of time because they're amazing showmen. Chris Cornell was actually a phenomenal fucking singer uh, on top of being a great lyricist and a, a magnetic, charismatic presence on the stage. And I remember when I was just, you know, when I think about my influences uh, as a writer, as a singer, when it comes to music... He was always right up there for me, and his sudden passing uh, is just, that that one really hit me hard, and for, for cinephiles out there, movie fans out there, you might remember there was a little period there where there was like, you know, Michael Mann had a love affair with Chris Cornell's voice, where, uh, you know, he used an Audio Slave song 
kind of out of nowhere in the middle of that Tom Cruise, Jamie Foxx movie, Collateral. Um, and then he used he, he used them again when he did that uh, Miami Vice movie with Colin Farrell. Um, yeah, so I, I, I remember finding that, that was kind of like a fun period because it was this weird cross-section between a filmmaker I loved and a musician I loved. Michael Mann just seemed to have a, a big uh, fanboy love affair with Chris Cornell. For a, for a few years there, and I just, anyway, um, Chris Cornell, rest in peace, man, I just, I can't believe, I can't believe that, um, and while we're on the subject of death and loss, uh, last night brought some absolutely heartbreaking news about Zack Snyder and his daughter, Autumn, um, you know, uh, where to begin, you know? Uh, Snyder's daughter, she committed suicide. She was only 20 years old, and she killed herself uh, back in March. And the Snyder family kept that a closely guarded secret up until last night. Uh, I cannot imagine what a loss of that magnitude is like. I can't imagine living with it. I can't imagine trying to proceed with work in the wake of it. Uh, like I've got a six-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son who are my life and stories like that just make me want to drop everything I'm doing, find them and wrap my arms around them. And that's, you know, um, it's just, it's, it's a lot. Uh, and you're like, okay, there are ways that I can discuss this news, this story, which would put some enf- emphasis on the movie that's getting made, uh, Justice League. But I really kind of covered that last night for the Splash Report, and honestly, it just doesn't it doesn't feel right to go there right now. Um, you know, in the shadow of this tragic news, it just feels wrong and too soon to spend much of any time analyzing what this means for the post-production of a movie. Um, so the only thing I'll say on that, that I haven't already stated elsewhere, uh, actually has nothing to do with Snyder. I'll just say it's, uh, you know, it's pretty cool and pretty damn interesting that of all people, Joss Whedon has ended up in charge of the remainder of Justice League's post-production. You know, that, that puts him in like rarefied air, you know, just as it was quite a novelty for, for JJ Abrams to shift from Star Trek to Star Wars, uh, it's pretty wild to think that Whedon has gone from the Avengers to the Justice League. Um, but that's really kind of all I want to say about Justice League and the, the Snyder situation right now. Um, you know, you, you can't wish that something like this on anyone. And I just, that, you know, that hit me hard. Um, but all right, all right, let's, uh, the show must go on, right? Let's, let's, let's get into the week's news. Gonna start things off with the weekend that was at the box office. Uh, now that it is Tuesday, we've got the actuals in, and you know, sometimes the actuals vary a little bit from what the initial projections are on Sunday afternoon. So let's get to this week's top five. Uh, number one was Alien Covenant with $36 million. Then there was Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 with $34.6 million. There was Everything Everything in third place. 
that indie film, which is now um, in its third week of release. There is Snatched in fourth place uh, with 7.8. And in fifth place, there's King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. So let's talk a little bit about these figures, shall we? Um, so you remember that dip I mentioned last week? You know, uh, it came very close to happening. I said that Alien Covenant was said to be projected to be opening in the upper 30s, low 40s, while Guardians 2 was set to be lower 30s. But I could see a scenario based on the tracking where Guardians may overperform while Covenant underperforms and dips a bit. And it's crazy how close they came. It's crazy. Look at that. You have 36,160,000 and the other one is 34,653,000. So we're looking at a difference of maybe 1.5 million bucks. So Guardians continues to do pretty darn well while Alien Covenant, you know, uh, okay, so we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So let, 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 let's stick with Guardians for a sec. So in 17 days, Guardians Volume 2 has made just shy of uh, 40 million bucks of what the first Guardians did in its entirety. Okay, that means that right now, Volume 2 stands at 732 million bucks, um, while the first one finished off its 25-week run at $773 million. So it's only $40 million away from surpassing Guardians, and it still has a nice long life ahead of it. Probably not as good a life as the first Guardians had, because you remember that one came out towards the middle latter half of the summer and didn't have a lot of competition. This Guardians is going to face a lot of competitions, but Look, you know, uh, 732, that's that's pretty damn good. Um, but then again, it did cost $30 million more to make than the first Guardians. And I think also, you know, people were, for whatever reason, expecting a little more. You may recall there were, you know, there was like an initial number that floated out there. People thought it might make $175 million which it didn't end up doing in its opening weekend. Then they were also saying it, it was going to soar past $150 million in its opening weekend. And listen, it made 146, and it, it far surpassed what the first Guardians did. But for whatever reason, the expectations for this Guardians movie seem to be like sky high, perhaps unrealistically high. But we're just where it's at right now, Marvel can notch Guardians as another W in the win column for them. Um, but let's see. So where does that, you know, where does this movie team stand up in the, in the MCU? It's currently at number eight on the all time list for the Marvel cinematic universe. And I expect it to finish its run in the number five slot. You know, I think it's going to jump seven and six, which are uh, Iron Man one and two, but I don't think it's going to come anywhere near number four, which is Captain America civil war. That's not a knock on the movie. But, you know, that movie made $408 million domestically. Uh, Guardians 2 isn't going to touch that. You know, if it's if it's at, what is it? If it's at uh, 301 right now domestically, I don't see that movie making $107 million more here in the States. I just don't see that happening. It's probably going to finish its domestic run somewhere in like the 370, 375 range. So it's going to settle in at number five. Um, 
But the other big box office story is Alien Covenant. You know, it, it's funny how much a difference of four or five million bucks can be. You know, what, what how that can be interpreted. You know, early on in the weekend, when it looked like the film would make a cool 40 million, people seemed to be celebrating. Then it ended up at 36, and now people are calling the film a bit of a misfire. So, you know, let, let's take a look under the hood and see if there really is something to this. You know, how concerned Fox should be. Um, so what did Covenant cost to make? Supposedly, 97 million bucks. There's rumors that it was actually a little north of that, like around 111. But they got a lot of tax incentives and rebates back from where they filmed. And that brought the cost down to 97 mil. So, look, that budget is not bad for a movie of this size. Um, but the problem is that opening really pales in comparison to the last film in the franchise, Prometheus. That movie opened to $51 million, and it looked like people were really intrigued to see Ridley Scott return to the hallowed ground of the Alien franchise. But this one opened around 34% less than Prometheus did. Um... And in terms of Prometheus, look, you know, the people were intrigued, right? But they didn't seem particularly impressed with, with the movie. You know, they, they gave Prometheus a cinema score of B. Remember, that's fans. Fans gave it a B, which is kind of like, ugh, they're not really sold on it. And a lukewarm Rotten Tomatoes aggregate score of 72%, which is positive, but it's, not, it's nothing emphatic. You know, Prometheus didn't exactly set the stage for an alien movie to come out and take the world by storm. So the opening was, you know, the in terms of uh, Covenant, you know, it opened $15 million less despite it being a proper alien movie with Scott at the helm. And it got the same B cinema score and the same exact Rotten Tomato score of 72%. So people pretty much felt the same about Covenant as they did about Prometheus, except this time, the novelty of seeing Ridley Scott back in the director's chair for an alien movie wasn't enough to move the needle. So, you know, how should Fox feel about this? It's hard to say, you know, it's a rated R movie and, you know, 36 million is somewhat respectable. But look, you know, I know they wanted to make another sequel or two. Uh, I just don't see it happening without a very dominant second weekend. I think they're going to pull the plug on the series, honestly, because it, it's almost impossible for it to have a dominant second weekend. Things are going to get very diluted for Alien next week because Pirates of the Caribbean will be opening on Friday. Then there's even Baywatch for people who want to see a comedy. Like Audiences are going to have a lot more options very, very soon. You know, they're going to have... Pirates, they're going to have Baywatch, which I'm not saying Baywatch is going to crush Alien, but I'm just saying it, it's another high-profile release. It has Dwayne Johnson in it, who's been certified box office gold for a while now. Then you got Wonder Woman arriving a week later. So, Alien fans, you may want to kiss any notions of a sequel goodbye. I think, I think Covenant is going to be the end of the road here for the Alien franchise. That's just, you know... Um, that's just what I'm thinking at this present juncture, barring some sort of crazy turnaround. Um, then, you know, other box office stories that pop out at me, you know, there's Snatched, you know, Snatched fell 60% from one week to the next. Uh, it made 7.8 million bucks. It's got a total cum now of about 40 million bucks. 
And for the sake of comparison, Amy Schumer's last movie, Trainwreck, had made $70 million by this point. So that's a fairly significant drop-off for her. Um, so yeah, and then, you know, the, then, you know, uh, King Arthur in fifth place, you know, that thing tumbled 54% for a weekend haul of 7 million bucks. Uh, it's, you know, that movie is on pace to lose Warner Brothers around 150 million bucks. That is pretty painful stuff. Um, so anyone wondering if the film was going to have legs, it's already in the single digits. So it's going to, it's going to disappear pretty fucking quick especially with everything that's coming in the next few weeks. Um, and in terms of what's coming in the next few weeks, you know, I mentioned Wonder Woman. I love that poster they put out in the last few days where she's holding the tank over her head. I love the way it's an homage to Superman, you know, the, uh, the first Superman comic where he's holding the car over his head. She's standing at virtually the same angle. Only she's actually one up, one upping Superman. If you think about it, he's holding a car. She's like, "Yeah, how about this? I got a tank." So <laughs> I love that. Um, I and you know, and and Patty Jenkins has mentioned in the past that she cites Richard Donner's uh, Superman the movie from 1978 as an inspiration for what she was trying to achieve with uh, this Wonder Woman movie. You know, between that sort of stuff, you know, they're really hitting all the right notes. Uh, when it comes to selling that movie to someone like me, you know, um, and I got to say too, you know, the, these murmurs that we've been hearing for a while now about Dwayne Johnson uh, as Black Adam taking on Henry Cavill Superman, possibly in Man of Steel two, have me super excited. I feel like I feel like mainstream audiences have yet to see what an electrifying villain Johnson can be uh, when he was a heel. In the WWF, WWE, and the Attitude Era, and whatever the fuck, you know, way back then, he was the embodiment of someone you absolutely loved to hate. Um, so the yeah, and I feel like we haven't really gotten to see him in that role in a movie yet. You know, so far he's been like the cocky good guy. You know, what I mean, kind of arrogant, kind of whatever, but he's been a good guy. He's been more or less always a heroic figure. Uh, the idea that we we get to see him in full-on villain mode as Black Adam with access to those magical powers that he has and he's he's so you know he's he's an incredibly powerful being and we know that Superman has issues dealing with magic uh, I think he's gonna be an amazing arrogant foil a destructive foil to a rejuvenated Superman you know, one who's you know, presumably coming back from the dead in a more outwardly heroic way, more Boy Scout-like. Uh, so that, that, that contrast between Henry Cavill's Boy Scout Superman versus Dwayne Johnson's arrogant prick Black Adam, I mean, that has me pretty much on the edge of my seat. So can we just make that happen already, please? Uh, stop teasing us. Stop teasing us and just make that happen. Um and also, it's funny, on Friday, when I put up the Fanboy Friday edition of the El Fanboy podcast, uh, right after I put it up, there was breaking news that I wish had it landed like an hour sooner, I could have mentioned it on the show. But, that, you know, there was a crazy news that Tom Hardy came out of fucking nowhere to secure the role of Venom in the Sony spinoff that's built around Venom. Uh, that's crazy to me. It just goes to show you, by the way, he must be a big comic book fan. He must. 
because he's already been there and sort of done that. You know, he, he was in a comic book movie as a famous villain, Bane, in a movie that made over a billion bucks. Like, he kind of, like, he put his flag in that. He's done it. He never has to make a comic book movie again because he's already been in one that was massively successful. He worked with a prestigious director in Christopher Nolan. He worked opposite Christian Bale. Like, you know, if, if you wanted to argue that he did that for the money, then you, you, you could say he did it for the money and now he's done. But clearly he didn't do it for the money. Because what did he do? A couple years later, he signed on to do Suicide Squad, which ultimately, yes, he dropped out of. And we know that Joel Kinnaman ended up taking on that role. But he was attached to it. He was very much willing to not only re-enter comic books, but he was going to be in another DC movie as another DC, you know, about DC villains. And he had just played Bane. So clearly, you know, there's that. And now he's got this. You know, he's going to be in a Marvel movie, I mean, a Sony Marvel movie about Venom. This guy must love comic. He must be a fanboy at heart. Otherwise, why would he keep gravitating towards these kinds of movies? It's very exciting. He's a great actor. I've been big on him for years now. Um, ever since I saw him in, I believe it was Rock and Rolla, before he had really crossed over here, uh, I thought, you know what? This guy's going to be a huge deal. And for him, for him to be taking on Venom virtually totally out of left field is unbelievable. And it's a total casting coup for Sony. Um, and with regard to what this means possibly to the Spider-Man movies, to the MCU, you know, what I think they're going to do, because right now there's all, there's all this talk that it's not going to be related. Um, I think that would be a huge mistake. I think it would be a huge mistake to have these movies happen on an island and not have any sort of connectivity to what Marvel and Sony are doing together with Tom Holland and Spider-Man. What I think they're going to do more than anything right now is keep his story sort of isolated and separate. Have it take place geographically far away from New York make it tonally very different, like a horror movie type deal, and have it be a very self-contained little story. Kind of like that one that, you know, that Dave spoke about, you know, when I had Dave Gonzalez on the show a month or two ago. The, the talk of it being almost like that John Carpenter movie, The Thing, where like up in like Alaska, you know, there, there was a, a Venom movie that took place in an isolated snowy area and it was more of like a horror situation. You know, I think they're going to make this Venom movie something that is very sort of on its own, but yeah, and so it won't initially connect, but if it hits and it's a big deal, then a sequel will inch it closer towards Spider-Man, and then maybe in a third thing, you know, one will cross over into the other's movie. I think for now, they want to see what the interest is like in Venom, so they're going to tell a gritty, sort of low-budget, maybe even R-rated, I don't know if they're going to go R-rated, because Sony's not quite as ballsy as Fox, but... I just have a sense that they're going to tell a very sort of self-contained story, but they're going to leave a back door open. They're going to leave the distinct possibility of a crossover at some point. Because you have to. You have to. You can't make a movie like about the Joker and say that it's not related to the Batman series. You just can't do that. And Venom is to Spidey as Joker is to Batman. Uh, so... That's what I think they're going to do there. Either way, I can't wait to see which way they go with it. And then they got Ruben Fleischer, which is a big deal for me too. 
Because, look, I know Gangster Squad didn't really do much for anybody. I didn't see it, so I can't judge. But just based on Zombieland, I've been a Ruben, uh, a Ruben Fleischer fan for a few years now. Uh, they, that movie, that for me, that movie was a huge breath of fresh air. I love the combination of like the hard R, like violence and then sort of vulgarity, but also like it had some real genuine surprises. It sort of turned the genre, the zombie genre, on its head. It had that meta moment with Bill Murray playing himself and putting on the Ghostbusters costume. Like then for me, that movie was very refreshing, very different, and it showed me that he's a director who is capable of doing some pretty exciting things here. So, um, yeah, Ruben Fleischer, Tom Hardy making a Venom movie? Like, what? Bring it on. I'm very excited about that. Uh, by the way, did you guys catch the um, you know, Vanity Fair just released uh, Star Wars covers uh, promoting The Last Jedi, sort of talking about the 40th anniversary of Star Wars, and there are four variant covers uh, that show off pretty much all the main players from The Last Jedi. There's one that has Luke and Rey on it. There's one with Princess Leia on it. Uh, there's one that has Poe and uh, Finn and that other new character. And then there's one with the villains. Uh, you know, it. I just, I need this movie to happen already. Um, I just need The Last Jedi to come out already. I need it in my life, okay? For me... Everything else coming out this year for 2017 is just white noise until The Last Jedi comes out. And that's, you know, and that's saying a lot because there's a lot of big movies coming out. But for me, there's nothing more important than finally seeing Mark Hamill back as Luke Skywalker and seeing where they take uh, you know, this new Star Wars trilogy. I cannot wait. I cannot fucking wait. Um... And then in terms of things that, like, I'm not sure how to be, uh, where to sort of sit on the fence. You know, Universal released sort of what they're how they're going to be branding their Universal Monsters franchise. You know, we've been calling it, like, the Monsters Cinematic Universe, whatever, because we're, we're all, like, sort of aping what we said, like, what we call the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, everything is called the Cinematic Universe. Well, Universal said, no, fuck that. We're not going to do, we're not going to have that sort of clunky name for our thing. They're referring to it simply as the Dark Universe. And, you know, last week I spoke a little bit about my reaction to the Mummy trailer. Uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit about the branding and what they're doing. That So they announced that the next entry in the Dark Universe... Uh, series here will be Bride of Frankenstein. Now that's you know that's pretty interesting. I don't know that I saw that coming. You know they haven't even announced the casting for her yet. Meanwhile they've announced you know Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man. They've announced Javier Bardem as as the Frankenstein monster. So the fact that the next entry isn't one of them, but rather it's going to be Bride of Frankenstein, I'm very intrigued by what the storytelling conceit is going to be there. Part of me wonders if they're going to try to do a thing where, like, they actually sort of reverse engineer it, where they're going to introduce the Frankenstein monster through Bride of Frankenstein, where, like, we're going to act like it's, like, like uh, in this mythology, the Frankenstein monster already existed in the past, and that Dr. Frankenstein, or maybe his son, uh, wants to attempt that experiment again. But realize that where they went wrong last time was that you know the the creature the beast was isolated was alone, 
and that they should have made him a companion. So they're going to make the companion first and then resuscitate the monster. Uh, I wonder if they're going to do it that way. Um, yeah, we'll see. But um, yeah, so Bride of Frankenstein is next. And then they also released that 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 picture that had... For me, it kind of lend it, it lended itself to this idea that Kelvin and I were discussing last week, that maybe there's more to Tom Cruise than meets the eye. You know, while it seemed at first sort of out of left field that he would even do a mummy movie, um, and then it seemed like maybe he was just sort of this character they added in there to be a foil to kind of serve up to the mummy in her uh, in her debut movie. Now that we, I'm starting to wonder if he does have a larger role. Uh, if something's going to be happening here where he does appear in future movies and possibly does become one of the monsters. You know, there's people saying, what if he's the Wolfman? I'm wondering if they're going to do a thing where he actually becomes the proper mummy, where she's going to, like, transfer her consciousness to him or something like that. Because they keep saying that, you know, in in the last trailer, they said that uh, uh, Sofia Butella's the mummy character is going to, you know, uh, trying to use his body as the vessel for the ultimate evil. So I wonder if we're only going to have a female mummy for the first movie, but in the future installments, the mummy will be a male and it will be Tom Cruise. We'll see. Um, yeah, and I'm just, you know, thinking about it, though, and thinking about like horror movies in general. You know, I, in the trailer, I told you that that last one for me it felt a little too much like it wanted to be a mod podge of everything. And I've just been thinking, I spent the weekend thinking about the kind of horror movies that I want to see. And granted, listen, these universal movies can't really be that because they're, they're trying to expand the scope. They're trying to make it like a wide scale international blockbuster franchise. So they kind of have to go big and they kind of have to be crowd pleasers and they kind of have to be safe to the, you know, to a certain degree. But the horror movies that I want, that I like, is are the ones that are kind of like, they're smaller and they really kind of creep you out from the inside. Um, an example of that is I, I just rewatched the the 2008 horror film, The Strangers. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but that movie is fucking crazy. Um, like it, it's so intense that my wife actually refuses to rewatch it. Remember, we saw it in theaters uh, nine years ago when it came out, and we loved it. But ever since, anytime I try to say, hey, we should we should check that out again, she was just adamant she cannot sit through that movie again. Um, there's a tension to that movie. There's a, it, it, it eats at you. The way it's shot, the subtle way in which the, the killers sort of stalk their prey, and the way that the slow build towards what eventually happens, like, I love that sort of dramatic tension, that slow burn. And that's the kind of thing you don't see in, like, a big-budget horror movie these days uh, in terms of, like, what they're going to be trying to do with The Mummy here. Like, The Mummy is not going to be a conventional horror movie. And, uh, you know, listen, I, I, I guess I just have to make peace with that, that even though they're dealing with these classic horror characters like the Wolfman and Frankenstein, all that sort of stuff. These are going to be a very different animal. Um, in terms of the movies in that genre that I do gravitate towards, you know, I, I actually am fairly intrigued by the uh, upcoming Halloween reboot that's being worked on by, uh, what's his face? Uh, the guy who was in Alien Covenant, 
Why am I drawing a blank right now? Uh, Danny McBride. See, I didn't have to pause. I didn't have to Google it. Danny McBride. Yeah, you know, it seems like he wants to tell a much more like back to basics Halloween story about Michael Myers. And he, he, he made some comments recently that really sort of spoke to me in terms of he felt like Michael Myers became way too super powered and they took the mythology to very far-fetched outlandish places in the uh, later sequels of the original uh, Halloween franchise. And he kind of wants to just make it a more intimate personal tale again about this creepy fuck in a mask trying to kill his sister. Um, so, you know, let's see, uh, let's see how he pulls that off. Uh, I hope he does. For me, Halloween has always been my favorite of all of those like late seventies, early eighties slasher franchises. You know, there was a time there where Michael Myers, Jason, uh, Freddy Krueger, Pinhead were like the Kings of horror cinema. And, uh, you know, I, here's hoping that Michael Myers can be restored to his former glory because he was always my favorite. Uh, and kind of like McBride said, I always hated that he like they, they kind of made him this unstoppable monster after a while. I liked when he was just a psychopath and this lunatic who escaped from an insane asylum to go finish off what he had started as a kid. You know, he killed his mother and now he was out to kill his sister. Um, and with regard to like that Rob Zombie reboot from about 10 years ago now, I always kind of thought they missed the mark there. That they missed what made Michael Myers special. You know, they kind of turned Michael Myers into Jason Voorhees, where he was this big hulking brute played by Tyler Maine, who was the first version of Sabretooth in the uh, in the Fox X Men movies. This seven footer. You know, they they had Tyler Maine play him in the mask as this big monster that could like break through walls and attack people that way. I'm like, and that's not what Michael Myers is. Michael Myers is that like creepy, quietly demonic entity that stalks you in the background where like when the, when, when the victim walks into the shadowy room and they have no idea what's going on and they're just, you know, like going through their purse or doing something just totally casual, you notice in the background, the white mask is there and he's standing and staring and watching and stalking like that is creepy, eerie shit where the victim has no idea what's about to happen to them. Not, I'm a big brute that can break through walls. Like, it just, I love creepy Michael Myers. And it sounds like Danny McBride wants to try to bring us back to that. So bring that on. And I want to wrap up today's show. Uh, by the way, yes, it is going to be a little shorter than usual. Mainly just because I really, with, with everything that's going on in the world, it's kind of hard to talk about like movies and, and entertainment today. Uh, so I'm sorry for the shorter than usual. Hopefully I made up for it last week by it being longer than usual. But um, yeah, I, I kind of want to wrap things up today talking about Wonder Woman a little bit. Uh, you know, there, there's some new uh, data out there from Fandango that says that the movie is the most anticipated movie of the uh, summer 2017 season. And, you know, there's... Uh, there's a good reason to believe that this movie is uh, everything everything that we need right now. Um, also, I'm excited to just announce also that I'll be attending a Wonder Woman screening tomorrow night right here in NYC. Uh, that'll be my next video review for the El Fanboy YouTube channel. Um, 
And to answer Tavo's question, yes, uh, if the movie is as good as everyone says it is, I hope they keep Patty, uh, Patty Jenkins in the loop for future DCEU films. Uh, she seems to have the closest grip on what it is that these movies can be. And, you know, what can they be? You know, times like this, they can be so much more than just entertainment. They can be... They can be something that that help people. That, that so they can be something that helps people get through a dark time. You know, um, it's funny. Uh, all right, well, maybe it's not funny. It's something that whenever there's a major tragedy, I think of superheroes. You know, yesterday uh, there was that awful situation in Manchester. Twenty-two teenagers, kids, uh, they died at an Ariana Grande concert. Uh, these innocent souls lost forever because of a terrorist agenda. People who were just going to go see their favorite idol perform, these teenage girls by and large, just gone. 22 different families now wake up today shattered. Truly horrific. And whenever something like that happens, I think of how the world needs heroes. I think of how, even if it's fictional, Real-life people need heroes to look up to, to offer hope, to offer idealism, to, to, to contrast with the shit that we're all living in these days. You know, I had the same feeling after the Sandy Hook massacre. Remember, I was driving around in my car. I actually had to go work that night in, in the wake of that. And remember, Sandy Hook, you know, I think 23 kids were slaughtered. And this is like not even an hour from my house. You know, Connecticut's very close. Where they are is close, and it felt all very close to home. And I'm driving to work. I had to go DJ a party that night. I just remember thinking, where's Superman at a time like this? You know, that that's why these movies and heroes are so important. We live in dark times. These are dark days. That's why I think comic book movies, especially ones about characters that are traditionally symbols of hope, need to embody the best that we, mankind, can be. Not be morally complex dissections or deconstructions of heroism. Kids need role models, not angst-written protagonists. There's enough angst in the world, enough things going on that make you question what the point of it all is. When you go to a movie theater to watch your favorite hero triumph over evil, you should walk away feeling uplifted. That's what makes... Wonder Woman looks so special. She seems to want to heal the world with love, with compassion. And right about now, we can use that. See you next week.